0: giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption that forgiveness of sins. Well, it's good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. It's good to have the thermostat a little lower this morning and last week. See, we're getting those, uh, those gremlins worked out and continue to be patient as we uh, adapt to this new environment here. Uh, You know, a couple of weeks ago, when we had our celebration service at 720 Emerson, where we were for, goodness, almost 40 years, um, I made mention and, and really focused in on our church's mission to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. We spoke about that and what that can look like, even here in this transition time between that facility and our new facility as we occupy this, uh, this space in Lockmar Elementary, a school that we have enjoyed doing ministry in for, really, for about 13 years now. We have been here in one way or another, just trying to walk along these men and women who serve our community as educators. But you know, behind that, that mission, the heartbeat behind that mission is our church's values. We have six values in our church, the first of which is living authentically with one another. You hear this on a consistent basis as we talk about being in groups with one another, in discipleship groups, and we have groups that are co-ed, that are separated by male or female, morning groups, evening groups, all around the area. So if you're not in a group, uh, we'll help you get into a group, and you can be in biblical community to live authentically. We have other values, like proclaiming the gospel graciously, I just mentioned groups connecting intentionally with one another in the church, but connecting with those outside of our church so that we can influence them with the good news of Jesus Christ. We have our weirdly worded one, multiplying concentrically. This is the, you know, the engineers and all money of us. Uh, but the idea here is that we're planting churches. We're starting churches, and we're spreading the gospel in our own backyard, and then in Florida and around the world. Like Think of concentric circles. A big value of our church is caring genuinely for one another and walking with each other through the trials of life. We are the family of God, and that word family is important, isn't it? But you know, our second value, the one right after living authentically, is praying dependently. We recognize that as we live in a world of self-reliance, it is vitally important that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and so Dependent, spirit-led prayer. We want this to characterize our church, just why even this morning we had a, a designated time of intentional prayer that we did together, and then just a few moments ago when, when Jacob prayed and uh, voicing our desires to God. We want this to characterize our small groups and our discipleship groups where we gather together this spirit-dependent prayer. We actually have a dedicated group of people who come in here at nine o'clock in the morning, a group uh, who gather for intercessory prayer. If you want to be a part of that, stop by the connect table on the way out and find out where they meet here on campus. I know that they would enjoy more people. Intercessory prayer is so important, and our passage this morning is a great example of why it's so important. As Paul in verse nine says, And so from the day we heard, now this refers back to last week's message, the first eight verses where Paul had heard how the gospel had taken root in their lives and they were walking after Christ and the church was healthy. And so he says, from the day that we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking. Paul faithfully interceded in prayer for the Colossian church and so many others through his ministry. Dr. Brian Harbour in his devotional on the book of Colossians points out that this word for intercessory prayer that is used in, in verse 9, in classical Greek, this is where Homer and Socrates, that word meant to have an accidental meeting. It's like you bumped into somebody out at the, out at the grocery store and you strike up a conversation. But by the time of Paul in the the form of Greek that they spoke, a more common man Greek, it referred to an arranged meeting, a scheduled appointment where two people would meet together in order to talk about a third person. And so when you think of it as a description of prayer, intercession means an arranged meeting with God to talk with him about someone else. That's intercessory prayer. And the Apostle's Paul, Apostle Paul's prayer is quite revealing. It, it shows us that the center of this prayer is this desire that he has for the Colossians, and it's a desire that's actually to, reminds us of the central purpose of our lives. If you'll give me the next slide, please. That the fundamental purpose of our lives is to please God in every way. And this entire passage is built around this concept of pleasing God. He's asking God that the Colossians would continue on the path that they've been on. They have been following Jesus Christ, but now there's a concern. They're being confronted with issues, with, with challengers, with false messages and false ideas and false doctrines and philosophies. And if they listen to them, they're going to be derailed in their faith. They won't please God. And so he's praying for this in their lives. What's ironic is that the the false teachers are actually presenting their ideas as the way for the Colossians to be certain that they are fully pleasing God and having the very best life that they can possibly have while doing so. So Paul's prayer is the opening salvo, actually, where he's going to begin to address all of these false ideas, all of these false doctrines and philosophies that are threatening this church. And so this is the very first bullet he shoots. And so as we study this passage this morning, I want us to see three very important gospel applications that come out of this passage. First of all, it's impossible to please God without the knowledge of his will for us. Next slide, please. Stay with me, if you would, guys, in the back. Thank you. Verse 9 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, there are several things to note here in verse 9, some of which are, are very obvious, but others are more subtle. For example, Paul subtly alludes to the primary doctrine, the primary teaching of at least one of these groups of false teachers. He asks that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Not that word filled or derivatives of, derivatives of it, like fully, fulfilled, or um, uh, fullness, those, those words are used ten times in the book of Colossians. And it's the idea of being completely satisfied, totally lacking nothing. So... These false teachers, what they were doing is essentially they were coming to the Colossian Christians, and they were saying something along the lines of, you need more than Jesus and the the gospel that Epaphras gave you. To, To have a full life that you enjoy, which you can be certain pleases God, you need to live according to this special knowledge. Or your behavior and conduct needs to align with these secret types of behaviors and processes and a way of life so that you can be certain that you're pleasing God. This needs to be the center of your life, not just Jesus. It's a tempting message. It's an insidious message. Because knowledge that others don't have and you have it, that kind of appeals to our flesh, doesn't it? Or having a incredible power at your fingertips, if you just simply fill in the blank, or enjoying a life that is prosperous and blessed and full, if you only eat this type of food and pray in this way, then you'll have a great life. That that is a powerful temptation To the Colossian Christians, by the way, look around you today in our own world of Christianity. It's a powerful temptation today. As even in our time today, we see this temptation put before Christians. And the source of these temptations is just as often from within the church. And people who claim to be within the church as from outside the church. Another subtle idea is that this filling with the knowledge of God's will isn't something that we can generate. It's not something that we can accomplish through our own effort. This is the work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. The English Standard Version doesn't capture it quite as clearly. The subtle idea, as maybe other translations like the New International, the New International says this, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. Now, what is this knowledge through the wisdom and understanding that the that the spirit gives? What is it? Many of us who through the years have perhaps prayed for God's will, we might default to, "Oh, this is how we Learn what choice we should make. We have a job opportunity and we pray, we ask God's will for whether or not we should take this job, whether or not we should move into this house, whether or not we should buy this washing machine or that washing machine. I mean, we pray about any number of things to try to discern what is God's will. And so we can come to a passage like this and think, yes, this basically means we, we should be pursuing God's direction in our lives and, and hear from him as the decisions that we should make. And, and by the way, we should be praying for these things. But that's not what's being referred to here in this passage. The knowledge of God's will is not God's direction for X, Y, Z. As you're gonna, we'll see next week in the passage that we'll be in next week, Paul has something bigger in mind. The knowledge of God's will here is God's redemptive plan. It's the gospel as embodied in Jesus Christ. He's praying that we will understand the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is verse 27. And Jacob will be bringing that to us in a couple of weeks. This is his concern. And linking wisdom and understanding with the knowledge of God's will, of the gospel is vital and it's important. Who of us does not need the Spirit's assistance in applying the gospel to our everyday lives? When we are confronted, when we face those decision points, when we are uh, interacting with unbelievers or we face temptations and tribulations and trials, when we grapple with sin When we grapple with difficult situations, how important is it that we think from God's perspective with the gospel shaping our responses? This is Paul's concern. His prayer here for us to have the knowledge of God's will is not so that we can achieve some uh, intellectual level of biblical acumen Or that we can grow in our biblical proficiency, even though it's important that we're proficient with the scriptures. This isn't some esoteric intellectual exercise here. This is very real world. The purpose for why he wants this isn't for the accumulation of knowledge. He says in verse 10, The purpose is so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. This is the central point of the passage. The purpose of our lives is to please God in every way. And the important way for us to understand how to please God is this knowledge of God's will that we are given with all wisdom and understanding from the Holy Spirit. So the purpose here is supremely practical. It is filled with immediate kingdom urgency. And he he mentions this almost to every single one of his churches. For example, Philippians chapter 1, this is a great example. It helps us to understand why the purpose for this filling of the knowledge of God's will. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Church, the way we please God is to live in a way that incarnates Christ to those who live around us. And this only happens... As our knowledge and understanding and application of the gospel, this only happens as our understanding and application of who we are in Jesus Christ begins to shape and form every aspect of our everyday life. The life we live at work, the life we live in our homes, the life we live in our neighborhoods, the life we live out on the ball field when we're watching our kids. Does the gospel shape us at those moments? Or are we those crazy paranoid parents that coaches run from out of fear? Right? So this is supremely practical. Very practical application. It is impossible to please God without the knowledge of his will for us. Second application. We do not need to imagine what kind of life pleases God. He explicitly tells us. In verses, 10 through 12, give us a great high-level summary of how we are to live in a way that pleases God. Remember, there was a large Jewish population in this area. And apparently, some Jewish teachers, some of them perhaps had made a profession of faith and were inside the church, like what was happening over in Galatia. Maybe they were from outside in the community. They were encouraging the Colossians to adopt different aspects of the Jewish faith, of Judaism, in order to please God. They were saying, hey, if you don't eat kosher, you're not going to please God. If you don't observe certain things, you're not going to please God. Then there were others in that community that apparently were encouraging them to focus on competing philosophies, uh, secret knowledge to experience a richer, fuller, Spiritual life. Uh, These false ideas were the early seeds of a heresy that the church faced called Gnosticism. That going from this point forward, it's going to come into full bloom within about 20 years. And then for the next 150 years, the early church fathers are going to be challenged by this heresy and battle against it. And, And out of this is the Gnostic Gospels. I referred to the Gnostic Gospels a few weeks back when we were in Joshua chapter 9. Is a major idea that, you know, unless you follow these secret ideas and you worship in this particular way and embrace this kind of philosophy, you would not experience a full spiritual life. And so this word fullness that I mentioned a few moments ago is important. It clues us in as to what was being taught to these new Christians in Colossae. So the pressure that we experience from various groups to adopt a particular certain set of beliefs, or maybe the pressure to focus on this subset of doctrinal ideas within the Scripture to the exclusion of many others, or the pressure that we have to adopt a lifestyle of in our education of our children, or how we worship. I mean, you can just go down the list. All of those kinds of pressures that we end up facing through social media, from people from within the church, from people from outside the church, it is nothing new. It's nothing new. It's always been facing Christians. And so church, I would encourage you, ignore all these voices and focus on the gospel. Ignore all of them. So I wrote a very long sentence. And it was intentional, and I'm going to read it to you. If I listened to everyone who has come to me through the years, I need to take a deep breath. I'd eat only fish and grains like Jesus, glisten from all the essential oils on my skin, have a soul patch under my bottom lip, sing only hymns, Sell Amway or Melaleuca as a side hustle. See anything other than homeschooling as evil. Support Israel no matter what. Speak in tongues. Read only the King James Version and refer to Jesus as Yeshua as I observe the Feast of the Tabernacles while sitting under a palm frond lean-to in my backyard that camouflages the underground bunker I've prepped for the tribulation, which will begin when Bill Clinton is finally revealed as the Antichrist since Hebrew numerology teaches us that his full name equals 666. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> now, sadly, at least half of those I've experienced since being pastor here. Some of you know what I'm talking about. By the way, for what it's worth, verses 9 to 14 is one long sentence. Paul writes one long sentence, 108 words. And so I felt like an homage of Paul. I needed one long sentence, and I beat him by 10 words, just if you're counting. (laughs) And there's an, there were, I had a longer list. I, I mean, I pared that down. Church, ignore all these voices. God tells us how to live and how to please him. And we see a, a great summary of it in the second half of verse 10 through 12. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, this is the purpose. Now, what does that look like? First, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. Remember, the gospel teaches us that good works are the fruit, not the root of a right relationship with God. But when we are in right relationship with God, dependent upon Jesus, there is inevitably going to be fruit. Good works are going to characterize our lives. We are going to incarnate Jesus to our community. It's inevitable. It's why James says, faith without is what? Dead. And so the first way we please God is to bear fruit in all kinds of good works. Inside this school, inside of, outside in our community, bearing good works. Secondly, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, the emphasis in this phrase is not saying you need, need to grow in the knowledge of God, even though you do. That word increasing is, a, is, a, is an agricult- agricultural metaphor here. It's growing like a farmer grows. The idea is not so much that you need to grow as much as the method for growth. It's the method for growth. We grow in the knowledge of God. We grow when we are living in this ecosystem of the knowledge of God, God's word. Okay, it's springtime. Many of us have gardens. I spent the last few weeks getting my soil ready, getting the fertilizer in place, planting my bushes. Now, every stinking morning, I have to get up and go water those things, right? And that's how I start my day is at the garden. Every morning, I'm out there. And and you guys understand this, if you have any experience at all. And it's a great analogy because what water and miracle grow and sunshine are to tomato bushes, the word of God is to us as Christians. And so a life which pleases God is a life that is constantly watered by the word of God so that that water seeps down deep into the soils of our hearts so that the roots of the gospel can grow strong and firm and then bear fruit to good works. See how those are connected in this passage? So first, we bear fruit to every good work. Secondly, we grow and increase in the knowledge of God. A knowledge, by the way, that Dick Lucas says isn't the special knowledge that leads usually to conceit. Whereas it's the knowledge of God that should lead to love for others rather than for ourselves. It's a knowledge that leads to good works. And then thirdly, in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. The third way we please God out of this passage we see it's when we reject self-reliance and humbly trust in the Holy Spirit and trust in him who lives within us to empower us to face the trials and the temptations of life, to confront those wrong ideas, to embrace those who need the love of Jesus Christ and to do all of this with the purpose and the end goal of glorifying our Lord in everything. So we're bearing fruit, good works, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, relying upon the Holy Spirit. This pleases God. And finally, in verse 12, "...with joy, giving thanks to the Father," who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The last thing God puts before us here is to tell us that he is pleased, and what pleases him is our joyful worship that flows out of a heart of gratitude, a heart that is grateful for his work in our lives, where he has given us eternal life, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, But he gave it to us out of his grace and love for us in Jesus Christ. As I was considering this passage, I actually was just struck by the thought that what Paul puts here very much resembles what we call our ministry pathway in our church. We talked about our our mission and our our values. We have what is called a a ministry pathway. It's like, how do you become a, a mature follower of Christ? And at the center of that pathway is that joyful worship of God throughout our our week when we come together corporately. And then, if those of you who remembered, I wish I had the graphic for you here, there's a circle, and that circle has us growing through biblical community, growing in our knowledge of God's Word and, and talking about it and holding one another accountable and applying it, and then that knowledge of God works itself out into serving and reaching out, serving within the church and reaching out to others. This is a life that pleases God. And the fundamental purpose of our lives is to please God in every way. So first you have this idea that it's impossible to please God without the knowledge of his will for us. And secondly, we do not need to imagine what that looks like because God explicitly tells us what pleases us. One final application, it's your favorite words in the entire sermon. (laughs) It's the work of God on our behalf that enables us to please him. Verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us, again, kind of an agricultural word, he's transplanted us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption to forgiveness of sins. I am so grateful that the Apostle Paul concludes that really long sentence with these two verses. Otherwise, the previous three verses would be overwhelming and soul-crushing be overwhelming. Because in our natural state, we cannot bear fruit in every good work. We cannot grow in the knowledge of God. We cannot rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit in our natural state. In our natural state of sin, the joyful worship of God is impossible because we're too consumed with worshiping all kinds of other things, most importantly, ourselves. This is who we are in our natural state. We inhabit the domain of darkness. I love that wording there. He has delivered us. He has rescued us. He has saved us from the domain of darkness. Do you understand what that's saying? In our natural state, we live as citizens in the domain of darkness. We follow and fall under the control of the prince of darkness, Satan. I was watching one of the Star Wars movies the other day for the gazillionth time. But this time, I was struck by a thought in the middle of it as Chancellor Palpatine has been working behind the scenes, and he's manipulating, and he ultimately brings down the the downfall of the Republic. He destroys it, and he creates this new galactic empire And he's named the emperor of this galactic empire. And and the thousands of senators in the room are cheering and they're happy. And the military people and all of the generals and soldiers, they're on board with following this new emperor of this new galactic empire. And there's hundreds of worlds across the galaxies with billions of people that are thrilled to be a part of the galactic empire. And what dawned on me as I was watching all that, is like, all these people think that they are the good guys in the story. They think they're all the good guys. But they're actually blind to the truth. They're blind to reality, that they're following the dark Lord. <laughs> they're enamored with the, with the Sith Lord. I mean, anybody whose name is Sith is not a good guy, right? And they're enamored with the Sith Lord, and they're clueless to who he really is. And then the real kicker is that they're glad Darth Vader is on their side, that he's their champion, although they're a little nervous whenever he comes around, right? But they're, we got Darth Vader, and this is, this is who they are. clueless. In real life, this is every person who's yet to experience the gracious work of God in a personal way. Every one of us in here who follow Christ, that's our origin story. That's how it begins. Our only hope, the hope of our world, the hope of our community, the hope of our family and friends our only hope is to be rescued and delivered from the domain of darkness. A rescue that we don't even realize we need. A rescue we can't begin to appreciate until God opens our eyes and enables us to see the ugliness of our sin and the brilliance of his Unmerited favor and grace. How does God do this? The passage tells us it's through Jesus, who redeems us from our sins, who purchases our freedom from the domain of darkness with his shed blood, who satisfies all of God's justice towards our sins so that they can be forgiven by him. Christian, the good news is this. Our fundamental purpose in life is to please God in every way. And here's the good news. God is already pleased with you because of what Jesus has done on your behalf on the cross of Calvary and on that Resurrection Sunday. He's already pleased with you. He delights in us As we are now given a share of the inheritance, he gives us a share of the inheritance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are co-inheritors now as adopted sons and daughters. He sings over us with delight and pleasure. And that idea right there frees us from the burdensome concept of worry of how we please God in order to earn something. No, we already got it. And so we live like this. We want to bear fruit in good works and then grow in the knowledge of God and be filled with the Holy Spirit and give thanks and worship him joyfully, not in order to get his delight, but because we already have his delight. And our prayer for us this week is that each of us will rest in that delight and that that Delight in us is what encourages us to grow, to bear fruit, to worship. And listen, if you're here this morning and you don't sense his delight in you, I want to encourage you. Come see me after the service. Stop in the, in the foyer area out here, the middle area. We have a care table that has Stephen ministers, that has elders, pastors who will take you to a, a side room. They will pray with you, talk with you, show you out of the scriptures how you can be certain that God delights in you through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this great prayer from the Apostle Paul. So evident that you, through the Spirit, were guiding and directing the words that were written. As even now, 2,000 years later, the power in those words are clearly there because the words are your words. Now, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would do a work of grace in our hearts. Help us as your children, as your people, to delight in you, to follow you. And this week when we're faced with temptations, may the joy of your pleasure be more appealing than the temptation that we face at that moment in time. May we say yes to more of your grace and no to the things that would derail and divert us from your will. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.